talked a little bit um, at the beginning of the show in this week's Weekly Unpopular Opinion about the relationship between testosterone and dopamine, how there's a bi-directional uh, relationship and they're kind of synergistic, and how I think the future of mood optimization and, and psychiatry is actually neuroendocrinology in optimizing your hormones instead of neurotransmitters. We had a caller talk, uh, call in and talk about taking methylfolate and how they realized that they had a, you know, a genetic variant in it and how improving that really improved their mood. Um, and so I talked about how if you're gonna take any medication supplement or treatment, uh, ways of experimenting with it so that you know that it's working by using sort of case control studies where you do an ABA test uh, to make sure that it's actually working for you. We talked a little bit about methods for burning body fat, and I talked about focusing on nutrition versus exercise, and actually focusing on walking over running and sort of moderate intensity cardio, uh, and why that's sort of a superior approach. Hey everyone, Dr. Cam here. Welcome to Maximus Colin Radio Show number 28. Uh, we are continuing our theme of maximizing masculinity and health. So following our call and radio show format, we are open to any and all questions that you have about maximizing your health in terms of your mind, your body, or your masculinity uh, and relationship, uh, even questions that we like to take as well. So we always uh, start out the radio show with a, a weekly unpopular opinion. Um, and so we actually had a question last week about the relationship um, between testosterone maximization and ADHD. Um, testosterone, um, uh, optimization or whether it's replacement is, is not uh, sort of a standard medical treatment for ADHD. But I did a little bit of research and there's a interesting um, potential benefits. There's essentially a bi-directional relationship between uh, testosterone and dopamine. And if you think about it, most of the uh, stimulant medications that are used as the most common treatments for ADHD are uh, dopaminergic drugs or agonists. Uh, most people are familiar with uh, Adderall, uh, which is the brand name for mixed amphetamine salts, um, which are dopamine agonists. So they uh, increase the amount of dopamine in the brain, which helps people with uh, motivation, reward, uh, and focus. Um, it, interestingly, there's also a relationship between uh, dopamine and testosterone. So um, the uh, HPA axis, uh, when you have a dopamine agonist, uh, actually uh, increases the amount of a hormone uh, called gonadotropin releasing hormone. That in turn releases luteinizing hormone, which increases testosterone. So the interesting finding is uh, essentially drugs that increase dopamine tend to increase testosterone as well. Not to necessarily huge super physiological amounts, uh, but that's sort of the relationship that you tend to see. So similarly, any um, you know testosterone optimizing substance uh, that increases that gonadotropin uh, hormone uh, uh, releasing hormone L or increases LH um, may have similar effects on dopamine as well. And so you do sort of anecdotally you hear when folks have higher testosterone levels, they do report an increased sort of drive or approach motivation that you would typically see in folks that are taking sort of dopamine agonists. They don't necessarily function the same way. Obviously, Adderall is a very psychoactive, stimulating, um, you know, it's, it's, you cannot sleep uh, when you're on that. Versus testosterone, it's a much more level sort of energy. It doesn't feel like caffeine, doesn't feel like a stimulant. It doesn't necessarily feel psychoactive uh, in the same way. 
Um, but uh, it does help with uh, you know focus and concentration and drive. And so it's a different, um, obviously very different type of drug, but uh, essentially testosterone and dopamine tend to go uh, sort of hand in hand. And so um, I actually think sort of there's a very interesting emerging field that um, is essentially neuroendocrinology, which takes a sort of different approach to psychiatry. You know, in psychiatry, like I said, if you're sort of uh, treating uh, classic psychiatric conditions like ADHD, you prescribe typical drugs like Adderall, most commonly, in addition, there's Ritalin, methylphenidate, Concerta, Vyvanse, uh, but they're all kind of similar drugs in that they usually either increase dopamine or norepinephrine or some combination thereof. They essentially target very specific uh, neurotransmitters in the brain. They feel very psychoactive. You can kind of tell that they're working uh, subjectively on the part of the patient. An interesting sort of novel emerging approach, and I just think there needs to be more research done, is sort of this neuroendocrinology approach, which is as opposed to directly uh, uh, utilizing drugs that cross the blood-brain barrier and target specific neurotransmitter systems, you optimize hormones, which include testosterone, vitamin D, oxytocin, etc. And, and these are kind of master hormones. They have a multitude of effects, and so they can in addition to obviously increasing the target hormone, may increase dopamine and other sort of neurotransmitters uh, as sort of ancillary or side effects um, as well, but they may have pretty significant effects on mood uh, and psychological functioning. Um, I, I'm not recommending them for that particular purpose. Like I said, I think more research needs to be done, but we can tell you subjectively and clinically from folks that do testosterone optimization or maximization, they oftentimes do report, uh, you know, feeling better and there's psychological effects in addition to the physiological effects. So people are obviously familiar with the physiological effects in terms of increased muscle mass, decreased fat mass, um, improvements in sports performance, which are all sort of, uh, you know, clinically validated findings. But there are um, psychological effects as well. One study, in fact, that um, uh, increased testosterone uh, pharmacologically found some interesting psychological and mood effects, which I have mentioned before, which is they found actually a decrease in anger, contrary to the roid rage stereotype, improvements in irritability, decreases in sadness, nervousness, and anxiety, uh, and tiredness or fatigue. Um, and in addition to that, they also found that there was an increase in friendliness, which is kind of interesting. I always say hypermasculinity is actually very warm, right? Someone who's very masculine is actually friendly because they're sort of secure in themselves. Um, increases in energy and obviously an increase in uh, overall sense of well-being. So I really think this is a really exciting and emerging uh, new area of neuroendocrinology and that in the future we're not just going to use SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or um, you know dopamine or norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors or agonists and because uh, I really think these simple neurotransmitter hypothesis that schizophrenia is caused by an excess of dopamine or a depression is caused by a lack of serotonin. These are overly simplistic models. And I think the field has to really emerge beyond that. And I really think the, the whole field of hormone optimization or sort of uh, endocrinology and the neurological effects of that, which is why it's called neuroendocrinology, uh, is a very promising novel approach. Um, and I think there's definitely more research that needs to be done. And it's very, uh, it'll be interesting to see sort of the clinical results continue to come out um, in terms of the benefits. Because I, I think if really, if you're having you know, low testosterone, 
or a deficiency in, in vitamin D, it's going to affect your mood. And you should probably fix those things before you go and mess with your neurotransmitters, which can have oftentimes, um, you know, uh, side effects. SSRIs classically have a lot of sexual side effects, potential withdrawal symptoms. Some of them have black box warnings in terms of uh, exacerbating suicidality and things like that. So, uh, you know, not making any particular medication recommendations or medical advice, but I do think it's a promising and emerging, uh, you know, field of study and it's worth looking into. And I consider it an unpopular opinion because no one's really talking about this uh, as sort of an, uh, a novel way of improving your mood through hormones. Uh, and I think it should be studied more and it should be tried more uh, because quite frankly, the, psych the cornucopia of psychiatric medications that we have are mildly to moderately effective, but they don't work for everyone. Uh, and I don't think they're panaceas. And, and the, the reason that people have mood disorders varies. Like for some people, they had a breakup and really they need therapy. They don't need any medication. Other people, they live in the Pacific Northwest uh, or, or the Northeast and they're not getting vitamin D and they need uh, vitamin D. And that's what's uh, inhibiting their mood. They have seasonal affective disorder and that's why they're depressed. So I think the future of medicine is really personalization. You gotta find out what, what the etiology or cause is of people's issues. And now we also need better tools, uh, including hormonal tools to address that. So that's this week's unpopular opinion. And uh, let's take some questions from the audience. Really glad you uh, made that first uh, monologue because I agree furiously. Um, that's amazing. And, and just to add one anecdote to that, like mm -hmm. um, one, one thing that will is impactful to me personally for my mood was just figuring out that I had it in THFR and supplementing with, you know, methylated folate yeah. and methylated B12. And it, it, it's made a, like a really big difference for me. So like, uh, totally agree that, you know, a, a personalized approach and understanding, you know, the etiology is critical. Um, I guess. And then for the question, mm -hmm. one thing that's, uh, been interesting to me is like, what if you make uh, an intervention like uh, you know increasing your testosterone suddenly you feel more confident you, you have um you have better focus you, you really do fundamentally change at least uh in in many instances mm -hmm. um and certainly when i've you know spoken to some people that have made these changes they found big thing big uh, big uh sort of you know psychological results and, and i guess the question is like how do you guide people through integrating their new psychology into their existing life? Because yes. at least from what I've seen, sometimes that really causes them to reevaluate everything um, and sort of start from scratch. Yeah, what a what a fantastic question, and that's actually like a deeply philosophical question, right? Um, which is it's it's almost gets to this question of like who are you, right? Like are you are you kind of your you're, you know, uh, I, I think of us as sort of biopsychosocial beings, right? We're, we're obviously biological beings that are highly influenced by our genes and our neurochemistry, right? And that's kind of what you're given. We can modify it, obviously, to some degree with drugs or even with our environment and with our behaviors. Everything sort of has a neurochemical effect to some degree, although there's quite a bit of variance in terms of the effects. Um, we're obviously psychological human beings. Everything that we encounter influences, uh, you know, our our uh, well-being and our personality and we're social creatures as well human beings in particular are highly socially influenced and in fact that better predicts behavior a lot of times than even you know your underlying personality is you know group pressure and what the environmental surroundings are so it becomes this interesting question right like if you change your neurochemistry or your neuroendocrinology 
and all of a sudden your personality is different, right? Like as I mentioned, you're less angry, you're friendlier, you're less irritable, you're less sad, you're less nervous, you're more confident. Is that you or is that the new you? And I, I don't know the answer to that. It's, it's kind of an interesting question because it, it supposes that there is a true you. I guess my point of view is that there, there really isn't, um, I, I would say, a, a necessarily a um, super stable sense of self in the way that we think. Now, if you look at, for instance, personality traits, they tend to be, if you retest them, you know, generally reliable um, over the lifespan. Now, we do know that people mellow out when they age a little bit, like they become more agreeable, for instance, a little bit more conscientious, um, you know, things like that. But for the most part, they're not dramatically, uh, you know, changing who they are. Now, to your point, though, once you start really like messing with your neurochemistry and your hormones, you can actually sometimes see drastic effects. I would say, at least in my clinical observation, it doesn't like change people from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. They're not, not like fundamentally changing their personality. I think it really brings out the best parts of people's personality. So if you take the example, let's say of anxiety, right? You know, it's hard to argue that anxiety isn't necessarily like a characterological trait. Um, uh, neuroticism, I guess, is one of the big five, and anxiety is a subfacet of neuroticism. But I actually find that it holds people back uh, more because there's a lot of folks, for instance, that I know that are actually overall extroverted, right? They get energy from being around people, they're gregarious, they like socializing, but they have a little bit of social anxiety and that actually holds them back. So they actually look introverted even though they like socializing being around people. Now, if you alleviated that anxiety, whether through a medication or through an exposure-based therapy and all of a sudden the anxiety is gone, now they're gonna look dramatically different. They're gonna be much more outgoing, they're gonna be less socially inhibited, they're gonna look more extroverted. So have they changed fundamentally their personality? I would argue no. I think they almost had the latent elements of extroversion that were always there but one of the emotional barriers or blockers to acting or behaving in a way that's more extroverted has now been removed and so they're gonna look different. So I actually think it really almost depends on where your underlying functioning is, right? So if you have a high degree of irritability, fatigue, and anxiety, and all of a sudden by optimizing your hormones or your micronutrients or, or, or whatever it is, it unblocks those things because they've been acting as barriers, you are gonna look dramatically different. If you don't have a lot of struggle with those things, your energy levels are good, your mood is good, you're generally focused, you're a highly driven person, uh, you know, optimizing your hormones, your micronutrients may make you slightly better, but I don't think it's gonna be a night or day difference because you may not have a lot of blockers. So that's why it's so interesting. It's almost like there's a lot of individual variability in, in sort of the response. Now to your question, how do you help people kind of integrate that when they when there are drastic changes? And that's exactly the philosophy of the Maximus program, right? Was is we don't just take a pharmacological approach to testosterone optimization. We use medications, supplements, and behavioral intervention. And I actually think the behavioral intervention is the most underrated and important part of it. It may not be the component that increases the testosterone the most. Now we know that, like for instance, if you're only getting four to five hours of sleep a night and you increase that to eight that will make um, a pretty significant bump in testosterone, but I would make say it'd make an even bigger bump in terms of your energy and your mood and focus, all those things. It's just, regardless of your testosterone levels, if you're sleeping four to five hours a night, you're just not gonna look good, you're not gonna feel good, you're not gonna perform well. So 
first, let's, it's, it's all about sort of fixing that. But, um, you know, the pharmacological component uh, increases or boosts testosterone much more. The behavioral component is making sure that you're channeling that appropriately. And that's where it's really important to have uh, goals, accountability, and structure. So I'll give you an interesting analogy from psychiatry. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier Adderall, right, which is a very common medication for ADHD. Now, if you have true clinically validated ADHD, you know, it, it, you're almost driven to distraction. You may have sort of a hypo arousal um, uh, deficiency in dopamine uh, or at least a dysregulation in dopaminergic functioning. And so by taking Adderall, it improves that underlying condition and it helps you focus. Now, here's the weird trick to it though. It doesn't, it doesn't, the drug doesn't help you focus on the right thing. There's a lot of anecdotal cases, in fact, of folks taking Adderall and then they just like spend the next few hours like perfectionistically cleaning their room, right? And while that may be a great thing, they really needed to study for an exam or they needed to get some work done. So that's the interesting thing. I, I really think with a lot of these medications, you have to combine it with a behavioral intervention, which is you have to teach people skills to be like, all right, you're gonna take this for the next four hours while the half-life is pretty high uh, or is, is active and the, the levels in your blood are very high, um, you're going to have a tendency to hyper-focus. Now that also means that you, you have to make sure that you're set up to not get distracted, right? It's gonna help you sustain your attention so that you avoid getting distracted, but in the first place, you gotta focus on the right thing. So you almost have to carve out the space, make sure you have the next four hours free, you set up your environment so there's not a lot of distractions, and then that way you can really get those four hours of studying in, the medication is gonna wear off, and you're gonna kinda of go back to your old self, if you will, um, but you'll have utilized the medication that time very well. I actually think it's the same exact thing for testosterone, where um, it can increase libido and sexual drive, right? And while that's a great thing, most guys love that, uh, if you have a tendency towards hypersexuality or addiction, it can be precarious because what if you spend all your time going on random Tinder dates and you know having promiscuous sex, uh, increasing your risk of STIs, wasting a lot of your time and energy, and you're not channeling that in a positive, pro-social, productive way that's aligned with your core values, then that's a problem, right? Now that's not a prop. That's not a. That's not a, a problem of the medication. It's a problem of okay. Now that I have this libido, how can I channel it? And I think a lot of if you read you know psychological, even spiritual literature, um, it talks about you know for guys, it's really important to channel the libido and sublimate it uh, towards creative pursuits, right? A lot of people, in fact, would would argue all great works of art are essentially sublimations of the libido. Right, so that's exactly why we put people into small online groups. We provide them with, uh, you know, coaching and accountability. Be like, all right, great. Now you have greater energy. Now you have greater drive. Now you have greater libido. But let's talk about what are the things that are important. Like, first of all, let's take care of your health behaviors. Let's fix your diet, your exercise, your sleep, your focus, but also your relationships. Right, and and you know, intimacy does increase testosterone. Like uh, people who are more sexually active have higher levels of testosterone. If you're around attractive women increases your testosterone. And so, uh, you know, you can uh, slightly alter your testosterone in that way, but the, the bigger and more important reason we actually like help people with intimacy and relationships is to make sure that they're channeling their testosterone appropriately and they're not getting addicted to pornography, they're not excessively masturbating, they're not going around chasing, you know, sort of women in a way that's inappropriate, but making sure that it's tempered in a way that they're obviously enjoying themselves, able to express their sexuality in a healthy way 
um, but in a way that doesn't take away from their life. It really adds to their life. And that, in my opinion, is really the art of psychology, right? There's no like right answer to like, how do you change your, or how do you um, spend your energy or your time, right? That's a, I think a deeply individualistic answer. And there's no psychologist or doctor that can really, should in fact tell you what to do. But obviously, I think you can kind of understand where, what people's values are and help them understand, are, is, are the behaviors that they're engaging in, particularly if they're impulsive or compulsive, causing a distraction or a detraction from their values? Or are they acting in a way where now with this newfound energy, libido, drive, etc., are they channeling it into working really hard, driving towards their goals, pursuing their values, pursuing meaningful relationships, pursuing meaningful, uh, satisfying work? Um, and that comes from the long, uh, you know, harder term work of sort of therapy, coaching, group support. So I, I think in the long term, it's actually much more important. Um, and, and that's why we have an integrated program. Um, so I think it's a, it's a great, great question. Um, I'm going to actually follow up with a question for you because I think you, 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 you made a really good point um, in terms of something that helped you. And I, and I think it may help other people who are listening. Can you talk, Alan, um, if you're still listening, about how you found out about that genetic variant? Like, did you do a DNA test um, where you became aware of that and how you address that through supplementation? So funny enough, I, I sort of did the opposite. Mm -hmm. I sort of, um, I, I had a friend living with me. He, he just had um, this supplement on his uh, night table. I was like, oh, what's this? It's, oh yeah, it's a methylated, it's good if you have MTHFR. So I was like, oh, interesting. I guess I'll just try one. Mm -hmm. And then w what ensued was just like the best focus I've had in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it was, I was just like blown away by the, the effects that this just methylated vitamin had. Uh, so then I was like, okay, maybe I have the MTHFR mutation. And I already had my 23 at the time, yeah. my 23 and me. So I just uh, w went in their uh, data and, and looked at it. And I had, uh, you know, the homozygous minor. Um, so that makes me a very poor methylator. Um, so I just went about it backwards. Yeah, that's such a great point too. Um, you know, I think the the future that everyone's positing is like, oh, you test first and then you figure out if you have you know, a genetic variant or a deficiency in something. But uh, yeah, sometimes people do take the opposite sort of approach where uh, they find that they're very responsive to a particular supplement or medication. And they're like, hey, maybe this suggests that I have something. Now, I think you have to be careful with that approach because it's not always indicative. Ironically, the example that I gave earlier, almost everyone will focus better on Adderall. Just because you do, it doesn't mean you have ADHD. Um, uh, because yeah, I mean, like it's a very powerful medication. But with stuff that you're talking about, like folate, um, yeah, if, if you don't have a particular issue with it, you're getting enough folic acid in your diet, um, you may not sort of notice any effects. Um, by the way, did you, was it 23andMe that already had that or did you have to download your data set and upload it somewhere else in order to tell you about that variant? Uh, I had to download it. At the time, they didn't uh, have a UI to access particular variants, so I had yeah. to download it and upload it to my own system. Okay, cool. Yeah, because that was my understanding too, is um, I think there's other websites now that can specifically tell you if you have that um, that variation. Um, and are you taking a quatrifolic? That, that's the, the kind that I'm familiar with. Yeah, I think so. I can uh, look at it if you want. So I'm, I'm taking... It's by Seeking Health. It's a quadrifolic, yeah. correct? And methylactive methylcobalamin 
and adenosylcobalamin. Yeah, my, that's my understanding is that it's, uh, it's like the most active um, form of it. So uh, not necessarily recommending it for everyone, but if you, if you do, yeah, get your DNA tested um, uh, and you have that particular variant, it can be very helpful uh, for folks uh, because of the methylation issue that you mentioned. Um, interestingly, though, I, I'm increasingly finding that a lot of um, high-quality multivitamins actually already have that um, form of folate, the quatrifolic, uh, in them. Uh, whether or not you have it, it's it's not not particularly bad if you, uh, even if you don't have that genetic variant, to take some supplemental folic acid. Again, not medical advice, but um, uh, like for instance, um, uh, women who are pregnant are oftentimes almost universally recommended to take folic acid because it prevents uh, uh, congenital uh, issues. Um, and so if you look at common high quality supplements, uh, for instance, Pure Encapsulations has one called uh, One. Uh, it's like one multivitamin that you take a day. Um, Thorn, in my opinion, has the best uh, multivitamin out there on the market right now. It's called the Thorn Multi Elite uh, and it's NSF certified for sports. So a lot of Athletes take it because it's pure, and it's they're making they made sure they don't there's not any contaminations that um, cause any issues with their drug tests. Um, I believe they also use quatrifolic uh, in it, so it can be uh, very helpful for folks. So obviously, do your own research, talk to your own doctor, etc. Uh, but yeah, it's it's amazing how you know if you do have some deficiencies, like I was talking about earlier, it, you're going to notice an even greater um, difference. Uh, another great example of that is. Um, magnesium so a lot of folks are magnesium deficient and the moment that they start supplementing with magnesium because um, you can obviously get it through diet and you should try to get it as much as you can i always believe your micronutrients through dietary whole foods uh, but it is harder to get enough uh, magnesium and when they take it their mood improves because magnesium really is an anxiolytic it lowers anxiety uh, it can help people sleep and so a lot of people who are kind of restless at night active thinkers um, really helps just calm them down, uh, reduces stress levels, uh, and really, really improves, I would say, mood, sleep, quality of life for a lot of folks because they're deficient in it and they, they don't necessarily know. Uh, and, you know, as opposed to doing very, like, if you, you know, expensive DNA testing, et cetera, you can kind of take the approach that you mentioned too, which is like magnesium is relatively safe, uh, obviously in consultation with your doctor. But, um, you know, if you take a little bit of supplemental magnesium and you find that anecdotally you're feeling a lot better, it may suggest that you uh, could benefit from it. Um, you can always like, by the way, track, you know, through a chronometer. That's the nutrition tracking app that I recommend. I recommend almost everyone as almost like a, a, a you know, like a check engine light or, or tune up for their body, uh, track a couple days of their food uh, in terms of everything that you ate on a couple days. The benefit of that is it not only tells you your macros, but it'll tell you your micros. So, by doing that, it'll tell you if you're eating enough magnesium, for instance, are you getting enough folic acid, as we talked about, um, like how much vitamin D are you getting from food? Um, and it'll it'll kind of point out areas of weakness, uh, where if you're not getting enough, then you might be like, okay, maybe I need to eat some more foods that are high in magnesium, or if I'm not getting enough calcium, maybe I should consume some yogurt or some eggs, um, uh, things like that. And so you can just use it as like, a analysis tool and then improve your diet that's the number one i would think i would say is try to fix your diet first because there is easy dietary fixes for a lot of this stuff by just changing what you're eating and then obviously if you're still not getting enough like potassium i would say um 
it's like, you know, you should try to get that from your diet. Uh, magnesium, it's relatively safe. You can, uh, you know, it's, it's easier to supplement with um, as opposed to potassium. And so you can consider experimenting with some supplementation as well. So uh, trial and error is very helpful, but using some of these tools, um, whether it's 23andMe, we talked about chronometer. Um, I've previously talked about D-Minder, which is a vitamin D tracking app. You can use it to tell how much vitamin D you're getting from the sun. It's a very useful, um, you know, tool as well. All of these are, are very helpful in terms of helping people sort of optimize, um, you know, their, their macros and micros. Um, and the goal, by the way, is not to be like a super obsessive, quantified self kind of person. I know for some people who are listening to this, they're like, oh my God, I got to like, you know, like be a health nut and track everything. And I'm like, no, you don't have to do that. I actually recommend most people do not track on a regular basis. You know, I personally, I will, I will do this maybe once every few months, if that, you know, because once I have my diet dialed in and I kind of eat similar sort of foods, I set it and forget it. I'm like, all right, I know I'm good on all my, you know, macros, nutrients, blah, blah, blah. I take my whatever supplements um, and I'm good to go. And, and the reason I do it is because now I, I know I'm, I'm optimized and I don't have to think about it. So as opposed to thinking about optimization as this almost like OCPD like perfectionistic thing where you have to sit there and obsess and track all these things. That's obviously one way of doing it. I don't recommend that and being like, you know, taking a million different pills and, you know, using a, a million different apps. As opposed to that, it's like you do it once, you really analyze kind of what's going on, you make some changes, you see if you feel better, and then you set it and forget it. And that's, by the way, the last thing that I recommend is whenever you experiment with anything, whether it's a medication, a supplement, or a behavioral intervention, is I actually really recommend people just keep a really basic journal, right? Because people don't uh, just even subjectively analyze whether it's working for them, right? So for instance, Alan, like you mentioned, like, okay, I, I took the supplement and I noticed a huge increase in focus, right? Now, sometimes it's so obvious you don't even need to write it down, but a lot of times it's subtle. Like a lot of times people don't put two and two together. And I'll give you an example. Ashkawanda is a really popular herbal supplement. It's, it lowers cortisol, supposedly increases testosterone by about 14.7%, but it's really meaningless in my opinion. Um, but it's super popular because everyone's stressed right now and they're like, great, an anti-stress herb that's over the counter. I literally saw it at Costco the other day. Uh, great, sounds good to me. The problem is it's psychoactive. It has almost effects, as I mentioned, that's similar to an SSRI. Um, and so it actually causes insomnia and a bunch and side effects in a decent number of people. But the thing is you're taking this maybe three days into it, you notice that all of a sudden your sleep is interrupted, you're waking up kind of, and you're like, is this because of work-related stress? Is it because it's hot now in LA and you know my temperature is high when I'm sleeping? Or oh, wait a minute, I, I remembered I was taking Ashkawanda, right? That's the benefit of journaling is you start noticing associations between whatever your intervention or treatment is and you know how you're feeling. And sometimes these things are just kind of loose or vague and until you start writing them down and say hey look i'm taking this let me see if there's a difference in whatever it is my mood my focus my sleep etc and so i can evaluate whether it's working or not because here's the thing if it's not if you don't really feel the difference then i would say most of the time it's unnecessary unless you know that there's a fundamental reason you should take it right like i would say like vitamin d magnesium because almost everyone is deficient in it it's probably safe to say that like you should just take it period regardless of whether you feel a huge subjective effect or not but for some of the like less necessary supplements i would say 
you should hopefully notice a benefit. And the only way you're gonna notice it, because oftentimes they're really subtle, is you write it down, you track it, and if you find like after a few weeks you're not noticing a difference, then get rid of it, right? You should be thinking about your health and your routine as something to optimize in and of itself. You're optimizing your health, but you need to be optimizing your stack or your routine as well and get rid of the stuff that isn't working for you that you're not noticing a difference. Now, in order to do that, you have to be kind of meticulous, meaning you gotta write down, you gotta journal just for a little while. And then the other part of it is you gotta be a little rigorous in your experimentation, meaning that the problem that a lot of people do when I see this all the time is they'll try two, three different things at once. They're, they're tweaking their sleep, they're like trying to cool their bed, they're taking this new quatrifolic, and they're taking magnesium. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm feeling better. And I'm like, okay, great, what did you do? And they're like, well, I don't know, I changed three things. And I'm like, but which of the three was the part that, act? is it all three? It could be synergistic, or it literally could have been, you, you, you tweaked your mattress and nothing to do with the supplements that you're taking, that's why you're sleeping better. So if you're trying to be almost rigorous and scientific about it, I really recommend people try to tweak one thing at a time if you're deciding that to whether to keep it or not. If you decide like, okay, vitamin D, I'm just gonna take it forever and I don't need to worry about it, fine, then just take it and you don't need to experiment with it. But if it's a little bit more of an experimental thing that you're trying out for size, then I would say one thing at a time, uh, log it in terms of journaling about it to see if it works, Give it you know, a few weeks to see if it's, you notice a noticeable difference in terms of you know, whatever the outcome that you're trying to achieve. If it's great, keep it. If it's not, get rid of it. The other thing too is you may wanna update that over time. There's a lot of supplements where people will notice some effect immediately. Now that could be due to placebo. Um, and so one way, if you're curious about placebo, is you do what's called an ABA test. So these are single case controlled trials and so you can literally do it on yourself. So for instance, track your sleep. Let's say you're only getting seven hours of sleep. That's all you can get because you wake up early. You start taking uh, 200 milligrams of elemental magnesium. All of a sudden you notice now I'm sleeping seven and a half hours a night. I'm able to sleep in half an hour more. Great, so you notice a boost. It's pretty consistent over seven, let's say 14 days. And then you're like, is this placebo or not? Um, now you can discontinue it. So that's the ABA, so stop taking magnesium and then see if you go back to seven hours of sleep. If that's the case, it's a higher evidence bar and it suggests, oh, like when I turn it on, it improves my sleep. When I turn it off, it decreases it. So it doesn't guarantee causality because obviously there's a nocebo effect. Like you, you know, if it was caused by placebo and you stop taking it, it theoretically can go away. But uh, it shows a higher sort of level of evidence um, in that it probably, is causing it. We can't say definitively because it's not a randomized control trial, but you can't kind of do a randomized control trial on yourself. This is the closest thing that you can do. You can do a case controlled uh, trial. So you can do an ABA test, and then sometimes people do an ABAB test. So they'll track their baseline, do the intervention, come off of it, and then they decide, oh, okay, it went from seven and a half, sorry, seven to seven and a half hours of sleep, went back down to seven. I know it works, so now I'm gonna take it again uh, and then it goes back to seven and a half hours. And then you're like, now I have pretty strong evidence that in the two periods of time that I took, let's say magnesium, my sleep improved, and the two periods of time I did not take it before and in the middle, it, it was at seven hours. That's even higher level of evidence that it probably works. Now, I know this sounds a little bit onerous, but it's really not. Like you could literally take 30 seconds at the end of every day and be like, how much did I sleep last night? And if you just track that for four weeks, 
and you try an intervention where one week you don't take it, one week you take it, one week you don't take it, and then the fourth week you decide whether to continue to take it, that's all it takes. This is literally like five, five minutes over the course of one month can definitively tell you whether a medication or supplement or behavioral intervention is actually working, and that's uh, how a scientist would approach it. And I encourage you to be the same. I encourage everyone to kind of be, you don't need to be a scientist, you can kind of be an amateur scientist, but use experimental methodology to make sure that you're not taking a bunch of supplements or things that aren't actually working with you and you're just pissing away expensive vitamins. That's obviously no good. So definitely use sort of these methodologies that I'm uh, kind of explaining to you by doing very simple, very light tracking. Doesn't have to be crazy, doesn't have to be onerous. Uh, but it can make a huge difference. So is the, the question about side effects of antidepressant medications. Look, uh, all medications basically have um, um, pr uh, pros and cons. And so you have to evaluate them in the overall context of the, the costs and the benefits, right? So um, there's, there's lots of potential side effects to SSRI. So you mentioned one of them, which is dry eyes. I actually think it's one of the relatively minor side effects. Dry eyes can be alleviated by taking eye drops, and there's lots of good eye drops out there. Uh, in fact, I, I, I found one recently that I'm a big fan of. Um, uh, people are often familiar with hyaluronic acid. It's commonly used in cosmetics because um, it kind of um, um, absorbs moisture. I think it absorbs like 100 or 1,000 times its weight in moisture, and so it's kind of like plumps the skin. So you see it in a lot of skin creams and cosmetics. Um, the, there's a form of it, sodium hyaluronate, I believe that's what it's called. Um, and it actually naturally exists in your natural tears. And so as opposed to using kind of uh, chemicals that don't naturally exist, it's basically saline, which is salt water, plus sodium uh, hyaluronate. Um, I'm doing a terrible job pronouncing it. Uh, basically, uh, the sodium form of hyaluronic acid. It's very effective uh, eye drop. You can find it on Amazon. Um, and there's one that specifically adds uh, trehalose, which is a sugar alcohol, I believe, um, that's naturally exists in trees. Um, and there's some clinical trials that show that it helps with the alleviation of dry eyes. Okay, so that tangent aside, it just shows that, look, uh, medication, even medication side effects can be alleviated with other medications, or obviously like spot or symptom reduction solutions, like just using some eye drops. Now, if you have severe depression and your PCP or your psychiatrist says, hey, you know, this is obviously not very functional, you're not getting out of bed, you're feeling terrible, it's interfering with your social and occupational functioning, you should be more worried about that than dry eyes uh, because there's ways of mitigating the dry eyes, as I said. Now, there may be some side effects that are more difficult to mitigate. Uh, as I mentioned, one of the most common ones are sexual side effects. In, in men in particular, it can cause anorgasmia, which is a difficulty orgasming. Um, so it kind of makes sex obviously less fun when you're uh, not able to orgasm and you get sort of a desensitization. That can also be mitigated, right? So sometimes they'll either, um, they can put you on an adjunctive uh, medication like a Welbutrin, a buprenorphine, which is a serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor um, or, or other kinds of things. So um, I wouldn't say uh, to, you should be obviously cognizant and aware of the side effects that uh, medications and supplements come with. Um, supplements generally have less side effects than most prescription medications, but not always. It depends on the supplement. There's some supplements that are not that great, to be honest. Uh, don't just assume that it's over the counter. It's always safe.
they're also not, not necessarily pharmaceutically pure. So they may be adulterated with other stuff or heavy metals and that those can cause side effects because you're taking stuff that you didn't think you should be taking. Um, but you need to weigh those side effects in terms of the benefits. So obviously if the uh, uh, side effects outweigh the benefits for you, like you're not getting much of a mood benefit and you know the sexual side effects are driving you crazy and making you unhappy, then and you can't mitigate it with a second or third medication option, um, then, then obviously have that conversation with your doctor and you need to either take a different medication or find a different solution. And maybe you need to just do a pure behavioral therapy or psychotherapy and, and that's you know, uh, very little side effects to side of psychotherapy other than your time and money, I would say. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's obviously easier on the body than, uh, than medication. Um, but if it works for you and you know, you're finding a huge, you know, you're going from severe depression to mild depression and you know, you have minimal side effects, uh, like you're just having the dry eyes and those can be alleviated with just a eye drop, then, you know, don't, don't be afraid of potential side effects. Um, so that's the other thing too, is be, be aware of the frequency and type of side effects. All medications that are FDA approved have like a pamphlet. You can go find it online at drugs.com. So you can find the common side effects to any medication. So if a doctor recommends, Hey, take, um, you know, Prozac, uh, or fluoxetine, very common SSRI for depression, you can look up the side effects. You can also literally publish the frequency of those. So if you're talking about something that, for instance, is a, a side effect that has a less than 1% chance, that means 99% of the time you're not going to have that side effect. You can obviously, you know, make an educated guess uh, in terms of like, okay, am I willing to take the risk? Uh, have I tried alternative options? Is this the best possible thing for me? But you can almost like, you know, predict to some degree the likelihood of you're going to run into it. And if it's 99% that you're not, you, you, you know, you're, you should not necessarily be afraid of a potential side effect just because it's listed in the television advertising. They have to disclose all the potential side effects, but it doesn't mean that it's uh, common, right? So you should be aware of that. And then finally, you can obviously just try it, right? Most medications, for the most part, if you try it and you run into a side effect, um, like I said, you can discontinue it uh, and you find that it don't doesn't work for you. But I find most people actually miss out on a lot of the benefits of medication because they're almost like philosophically opposed to pharmacology. They, they have what I call chemophobia, which is like a phobia of chemistry. Like they think anything that doesn't come from the plants or the earths is like toxic and terrible for you. It's a, it's a completely nonsense, um, you know, idea because like, for instance, aspirin, right? Which is a common over-the-counter pharmaceutical uh, pain and fever reliever is a purified form of something that comes from the... Uh, uh, bark of a tree and that native americans use in their indigenous medicine so unless you like grinding up tree bark uh which, which is a natural medicine they're just using a pharmaceutically pure form of it is it natural is it is it pharmacological it's somewhere in between right so even the definition between a chemical and the natural substance is really blurred when you take examples of things like aspirin a lot of the natural stuff in fact that we find that is effective we turn it into a drug right look at look at pharmaceutical fish oil it's now prescription for lipid management because, you know, eating fish is uh, healthy for you. But a lot of people, especially Americans, don't eat enough fish. We don't eat very much of a Mediterranean diet. And so for people who don't or they don't like fish for whatever reason, I meet a lot of people who don't like fish. Uh, I think that's sad. I love fish. Uh, taking a supplemental, non-oxidized, high-quality form of fish oil can be a very effective supplement uh, for them. Or if you have, um, you know, some uh, lipid issues that your doctor thinks could be uh, improved by taking a supplemental fish oil or a prescription fish oil, right? 
So that's also an example, like, is that natural? Is it not? It's actually from fish. It's just filtered to be pharmaceutically pure. So I think people should really get over their chemophobia, to be honest with you. You have to make it the best decision for you. And you have that con conversation and consultation with your doctor, do your research about the side effects, ask them about it, and then make an informed decision about what the right thing is for you. And like I said, you can always try uh, and see if you actually develop them. And if you do, you can either uh, do something else to improve it or you can just come off of it. But don't be afraid to, to try new things just because you know all drugs are bad or whatever myths that are out there. So there's a question that was submitted about, do you recommend um, more cardio for fat loss, more weight training, or a mixture of both? Um, I'm actually gonna give you the contrarian answer to this, which is neither, uh, neither of the two. If you're, if you're really focused on fat loss, I would predominantly focus on your nutrition. Um, fat loss ultimately does come down to a caloric deficit. Um, and while all calories are not equal, as Gary Taos and other folks um, have pointed out, um, we do know that uh, eating a caloric deficit um, it can help you lose weight and drop body fat. And it's by far the easiest way, in my opinion, um, uh, and most sustainable way of making sure that you're losing weight. We, we know, for instance, from the research literature that the contribution of diet versus exercise to weight loss it's predominantly diet. Exercise doesn't do that much. And we know this because there's really interesting studies where they have people who are sedentary train and do marathons, right? They go from couch potatoes to not only 5K, but like marathon runners, and they're still fat, right? Like if someone who can run 26 miles is, is pretty athletic to some degree, at least in an endurance capacity. But the interesting that they found is that all that running increased their appetite, then they continued to eat more, and guess what? They ate more calories. And so every calorie that they were burning they were just eating, and so they weren't necessarily losing weight. That's the problem with, with um, trying to use an exercise-focused approach to weight loss. You need to do both, right? That's the ideal situation. But I would say it's 80% diet, 20% exercise. Now, if it's talking about weight maintenance, exercise is very important for keeping the weight off once you've achieved it. And my kind of particular pet theory around that is it's really more psychological. The reason people relapse is because they get stressed, they stress eat or emotionally eat, and they kind of fall off the wagon and they, oh, I give up, I'll never keep the weight off. But obviously if you're exercising, uh, you know, it has a, uh, I believe a moderate effect on depression, a mild effect on anxiety or, or, or vice versa. Um, and so it improves your mood to some degree. Um, and so when people's mood are, is, is better, their ability to, to manage stress is better, they're less likely to relapse. So that's what I would say is focus much more on your nutrition when it comes to fat loss. Um, and uh, you know, I particularly am a fan of lower carbohydrate diets. I don't think everyone needs to necessarily go on a ketogenic diet, but that's kind of an individual question for you is, are you willing to do it? If you are willing to do it, you're probably gonna get better results than on a, let's say a low fat diet. There's good research literature that validates that. And number two, is it sustainable for you? For a lot of people, people treat sort of ketogenic diets as a crash diet. They're like, I'm gonna do this for four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, cause it's a hot girl summers <laughs> or hot boy summer. And, uh, but I'm never gonna be able to keep this up cause I, I love bread or pizza and I can't do that. Um, I don't recommend that in that case. Um, now, there is kind of a, a, a happy medium in the sense that if you follow sort of the original Atkins approach, and Verda 
Health actually documents this on their blog. Um, so Volek and Finney, who are the godfathers of low carbohydrates diets, talk about this. They do an induction phase, right, where they uh, almost cut out all carbs. Uh, and then there's kind of a weight loss phase where they try to keep the carbs under 50 grams of total carbohydrates per day. And then once they achieve their weight loss, you increase the carbohydrates to the level that you, you, you're starting to gain weight again, and then that becomes your individual carbohydrate tolerance. So for me, for instance, I could probably consume 100 grams of carbs a day because I'm very physically active, uh, have a good metabolism, still pretty young, uh, don't have a lot of body fat, um, and I'm still gonna still be able to maintain my weight and my blood sugar levels in a healthy way. So if you're doing a systematic program where it transitions, and we talked about this in a previous podcast, it can be okay to eat in a way that's unsustainable, but it's because there's a plan to transition, meaning that once you hit your goal weight or your, your body fat percentage that you're trying to achieve, then the, then the rules change. You don't wanna be in a caloric deficit forever. The problem in particularly, you know, we talk about hormone optimization is when you're in a caloric deficit, meaning that you're eating less calories than your um, than you're burning. Um, the problem is your energy levels are low because you know your your body gets under stress. Your cortisol levels increase, uh, and we know that cortisol is a catabolic. It kind of wastes muscle, and so it's not great for optimal hormone levels when you're on a caloric deficit. That's why when people's hormone levels are the best, they're eating either a eucaloric, which is like they're maintaining their the same amount of calories in and out or they're in a hypercaloric where they're trying to gain weight and bulk up as bodybuilders like to say, it's really actually better for your hormones when you're doing that. So you have to kind of balance like weight loss and hormone optimization. But um, so what I would try to do to kind of mitigate the negative effects is don't do extreme caloric deficit. A, it's not sustainable. Um, and even if you're doing it as a crash diet, it can really throw off your, um, you know, your cortisol levels, throw off your hormones. And also, you're just gonna be tired, hungry, and cranky, right? You ever, you ever talk to someone who's on a crash diet and they're eating like, I would say a 500 plus caloric deficit? You're starving, right? And when you're starving, your brain is not working right. You're almost in like a fight or flight mode uh, and it's not a great uh, thing. So I, my recommendation is don't go under, don't go over a 500 calorie deficit because it really becomes taxing both psychologically and physiologically. I generally recommend people do like, um, a uh, 100, 200 calorie deficit because it's more sustainable. You'll barely notice the difference between 100, 200 calories if you're eating one or two less. It's like if you eat, I don't know, a one or two less bananas, like that's 100, 200 calories. And otherwise you're pretty much eating the same thing. But if you add, add up the math, right, that's 700 to 1400 calories per week uh, that you're cutting and slowly but surely you're gonna start dropping body fat. You're gonna stop, start dropping body weight um, and, uh, you know, you'll do better. So, um, that's, I think by far the best approach for fat loss. Um, now you should do, be doing your weight training, but you should be doing it for other reasons. The primary benefit of weight training, in my opinion, is to put on as much lean mass as possible, right? It's less for fat loss. Now it does help with fat burning. These are not completely, um, mutually exclusive things, but you're doing it for that reason. And obviously there's a huge psychological benefit to strength training as well in terms of discipline and pushing yourself and pain tolerance, quite frankly. Um, now, if you do wanna do some supplemental cardio, I think it can be helpful. If you obviously talk to a lot of bodybuilders, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger and stuff did do supplemental cardio. Now you have to take a little bit what they say with a, a grain of salt because they were on also a ton of performance enhancing drugs. So a lot of the stuff that they did was a little bit extreme. Um, but that being said, the first thing that I would focus on is, like I said, number one, prioritize your diet. Number two, um, make sure you're getting enough low intensity steady state exercise, meaning walking, right? You wanna be walking 7,000, 7,500 7, steps a day is a general rule of thumb that is in line with CDC guidelines. I always say, uh, try to get a thousand steps for every hour of sleep that you're trying to get. So seven to 9,000, seven to nine hours of sleep means seven to 9,000 steps. So that's about the amount of steps that you're getting. Um, it really improves your metabolism when you walk a lot. And I would particularly recommend breaking it up throughout the day. It's much better to, let's say, go for seven walks of 1,000 steps than to go for one walk of 7,000 steps. The reason for that is if you sit on your ass all day for 12 hours at work, and then you go for one long walk at the end, even though the number of steps is the same, your metabolism has slowed down during those 12 hours, and uh, you're not burning very many calories. Versus if every hour on the hour, you take a 10 minute walk, you walk a thousand steps, 10 minutes about a thousand steps, you do that seven times all throughout the day, uh, it prevents your body from slowing down. And so when you're sitting excessively, it slows down your metabolism. When you get up and walk, it counteracts that. And so it actually improves, even though two people can be walking 7,000 steps, exactly the same amount of steps, the person who breaks it up and does it as frequently as possible is gonna have a better, faster metabolism than someone who just does it once. Um, there's also some research to validate this. There was one study that I saw that encouraged people to go on, I believe it was 15 minute walks three times a day. Um, it was after every meal. And in that case, it improved their postprandial blood plasma glucose response, which is just a fancy word for your blood sugar levels after every meal. Um, the, they get spiked less or they go up less when you basically just take a walk after every meal. Now, the interesting thing is that this is like a very like rigorously done scientific study, but it's almost very Lindy or traditional in a way. Like a lot of cultures, just traditionally, after you eat, everyone says, hey, you know, I'm feeling kind of heavy. Let's go for a walk. And I think people anecdotally, almost like through trial and error, just like Alan was talking about with methylfolate, found that they feel better when they go for a walk after they have a lot of carbs because it helps burn them. So um, that's the best thing you can do, in fact, is, is uh, go for frequent walks all throughout the day to make sure that your metabolism is primed. And if you really wanna go above and beyond that, sure, do a little bit of cardio. Um, I'm a bigger fan of high intensity interval training rather than moderate intensity long runs. Uh, I think that actually contributes more catabolism and more cortisol that you are already don't need because you, if you're on a calorie cut, or a caloric deficit, you're already putting your body under strain, so you don't need more cardio to exacerbate that. If I'm on a caloric deficit, I'd be very careful about the volume of training that I'm doing. You know, you may wanna do more like three days a week of strength training versus five days a week of strength training if you're really cutting your calories, because you wanna make sure that you're not burning yourself out and that you have appropriate rest days to recover. So you wanna, you wanna adjust your volume. If you're you know, eating a lot of calories and you're bulking, getting great, go nuts on the volume uh, and, and try to get as much as you can. Um, but there's different rules basically basing on, on how much you're eating. Um, so that's what I recommend. Maybe one, one day a week of high intensity interval training, doing some sort of sprint or some sort of natural interval exercise like basketball, 
soccer, uh, some, something that you enjoy, dancing, um, uh, is a great sort of supplemental cardio that can help fat loss. And a lot of bodybuilders do do you know, some supplemental cardio outside of the gym um, as well. But I would say that's like a 95th percentile kind of thing. Uh, I would say make sure you focus on your diet uh, and your walking, and that will be enough for 95% of people. If you're really trying to get super lean or you're being a bodybuilder or that kind of thing, then sure, do a little bit of supplemental running or other things. I don't think most people need to do it though. So I have a quick question regarding like hygiene prod- uh, products, yep. specifically like deodorant, like uh, natural uh, deodorant or natural um, clone and stuff like that or toothpaste. Yeah. So like I, I was, I was just like reading about um, deodorant has alum- uh, aluminum, correct, and stuff like that. So I'm kind of a little bit concerned about it. I did a little bit of research, but I thought that you'd know a lot more about it. So kind of curious about your recommendations. Yeah. Okay. So um, most uh, there's a difference between antiperspirants and deodorants. Antiperspirants work by blocking the pores of your underarms. And that's why they use aluminum. Aluminum tends to block the pores and pr- prevent you from perspiring or sweating. That's why they work really well. But to me, I'm like, A, um, we don't know how bad aluminum is. Quite frankly, there's some concern that it's carcinogenic or cancer causing. I think the jury is out. But my opinion is why risk it? Uh, putting sort of an unnatural substance there. And also that part of the skin absorbs a lot. So you should pretty much assume that anything you rub under your underarms is getting uh, absorbed by the system. You have a lot of lymph nodes in that area too. Your lymphatic system is responsible for your immune system. And so, uh, you know, it can get absorbed with that. And the incidences of leukemia uh, and lymphoma are very high these days or higher than they at least used to be. So I personally do not recommend uh, aluminum-based deodorants. Also, you shouldn't be blocking your pores. I know it's not great to sweat out a shirt, uh, especially in hot weather. Um, but uh, by the way, a really great tip is there are, um, if you're wearing like a dress shirt underneath it or a polo shirt or like kind of a collared shirt, there are uh, sweat blocking undershirts that you can buy that have like, it's almost like a pad underneath the um, your underarms and they work fantastic. So for instance, like I, I have like merino wool cashmere sweaters that are delicate and you just can't wash these things all the time, they get ruined. And so, but if you just throw on an undershirt underneath it, you can sweat and it won't get to the sweater. And so you can literally re-wear these sweaters because they don't get your sweat on them uh, as a guy. You don't need to wash them every time. So, and same thing with dress shirts, which are expensive to like go get dry cleaned uh, and they get ruined over time. Um, I, the best, so the best solution is prevention. You buy, buy sort of these under, if you wear an undershirt, these, these uh, 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 sweat blocking sort of shirts. So number, that, that's number one. Number two, I would say, um, don't use antiperspirants. You, your body sweats for a reason. Sweat is used to cool you down. And so um, uh, you, you don't wanna do that. Uh, deodorants obviously just mask the smell, but you know, it doesn't really work because all you're doing is like putting perfume or cologne on top of your body odor. And body odor is basically caused by bacteria that consumes um, some of the constituents of your sweat. So I, I am a bigger fan of natural um, deodorants. The trick though is most natural deodorants in the market uh, cheat essentially. They use baking soda. Baking soda is dirt cheap, but how it works is it basifies the pH of your skin. Your skin is naturally acidic. It has what's called an acid mantle. So if you remember your basic chemistry, pH kind of goes on a 14 point scale. Seven is considered pH neutral. Your skin though is slightly acidic. It's about a pH of five-ish, but when you add baking soda, it increases it to about a seven or eight. 
what happens by doing that is it prevents the bacteria that naturally grow on your skin from growing. So it does really work. I would say skip the $12 like Tom's or native deodorant. Um, and if you really wanted to use something like that, just take a little bit of baking soda, put it under your underarms. Works just as well. The problem with that though, is when you mess up your skin's acid mantle, um, it messes with the pH of your skin and it can actually cause opportunistic skin infections. And so people actually develop candida. You should actually read the reviews of those natural deodorants. You'll see that like one out of every 10 reviews, people talk about uh, redness, irritation, or skin infection that they develop. So I do not recommend using um, baking soda-based natural deodorants and you need to look at the ingredients. Number two, the crystal sticks that you see that are natural um, use something called potassium alum. And even though it is a crystal that's extracted from whatever it is, Potassium alum is another form of aluminum. So that works, but also if you're trying to avoid aluminum, you're getting much of the same thing. So the solution that I really recommend is actually zinc. Uh, zinc is a uh, natural antibacterial. Um, it does not change the pH of your skin as much as baking soda. So you don't get the opportunistic skin infections. And third, zinc is a natural uh, mineral that's good for your body. So even if you absorb some zinc, great. Like you, I take supplementals, it's like 25 milligrams of zinc in my uh, multivitamin, right? And you, you get zinc in seafood and all kinds of food. So it's not bad if you absorb a little bit of zinc uh, in your system. So um, the best way of finding zinc, ironically, is it's used in diaper cream. Uh, so there's lots of great diaper creams out there. I know it sounds a little weird, uh, but you know, they're not diaper cream. It's just a zinc cream. Um, and, uh, if you look on Amazon, I believe some of them are in stick form. Um, I'll post a link after the show, um, where you can use it in a stick form or some of them are in a cream form. You just take a little dab of it, rub it under your underarms. Works fantastically well. Even if you're a sweater, um, uh, you will still perspire. Cause like I said, it's not an antiperspirant, but it does block the bacteria from growing. Um, and it prevents, uh, uh, the smell as a result. Uh, so yeah, zinc based, in my opinion, best natural deodorant out there. I've tried everything. Uh, and maybe in the future we'll even, we'll even launch it as a product. Cause there's, there's none that's I've seen that have like been marketed well as deodorants. So that's my, uh, natural antiperspirant, uh, tip. Great questions. If you have any additional questions, please submit them and we'll address them next week. Same time Thursdays at six o'clock. So be well maximizers and I'll catch you online on our discord discussion forum. Take care.